Several years ago, Mike Hayes came down from Dallas to speak to us as men on a Friday night. I took some notes. I thought it was an excellent presentation. I pulled those notes back out and I put some of my own in it and I thought it'd be a great, a great word to share to all of us who are men today, husbands, fathers, grandfathers. So I'm going to talk about three qualities of kingdom men and I'm going to go to Psalms 128 if you happen to want to follow me. What is it that sets men so significantly apart from women? Obviously, if you read anything, watch anything, it's pretty obvious there's no doubt men are different than women by God's design. Research has proven there's actually a brain difference, left brain, right brain, men are from Mars, women from Venus, something. We all are at least aware of the books and research that we are different by design. Men need to conquer. Women need to nurture. That's a huge difference. And one of the reasons men are bored with average typical church, and maybe sometimes even a marriage to one woman, is that we look at everything as property, everything as ownership, something to be conquered. So if a man views church as, well, there's nothing here really to conquer, then that man is going to be bored. A woman, however, has a great need to nurture. So church environment is more fitting for a woman than a man. Men are never able to conquer themselves anyway. You've got to submit to God's ability to conquer what you are and what's in you. Then you become a man under God's authority. And boy, that's the first conquest that has to be achieved, that conquest of men, ourself. And secondly, we've learned that as men go, so goes the church. Now, we do in this church love, appreciate, and honor the role women have played in the church for centuries. We're proud of them. We thank God for them. When you look at God's Word and even in Jesus' ministry, it was women who majorly supported Jesus' ministry. It was women, uh, it was a woman that was the last one at the cross when all the disciples had run away like rats off a sinking ship. And it was a woman who was first at the tomb three days later because she believed what Jesus had said about being raised from the dead. There wasn't a man there. So women pretty much have done all the work of the church and gotten very little credit for it. And yet, to be what the church was designed to be by God, it cannot be that without the presence of men. So as go the men of a church, so goes that church. There's a conquering spirit that God gave a man and a leadership function, and that has to be present in a home, and that has to be present in a church for it to be healthy. Now, sometimes we men drag our bodies into church, but we don't really bring us. You know, we think the ability we have to conquer, uh, maybe I can get it in business, uh, maybe I can get it at the gym, maybe I can get it in a bar, maybe I can check out an affair, but I don't see anything to conquer at the church. And that's typically the view of a lost man, a man that does not understand the purpose of the kingdom of God. Now, here's a statistic that's really shaking to me. Churches are made up in America, 60% women, 40% men. The 18 to 25-year-old male is the least likely people group to be involved or to attend the church. Now, let's go over to Psalms 128. I'm going to read it and grab three challenges for men 
out of this psalm, Psalms 128. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in His ways. When you eat the labor of your hand, you will be happy. It will be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine in the very heart of your house. Your children will be like olive plants all around the table. Behold, thus shall a man be blessed who fears the Lord. Verse 5, may the Lord bless you out of Zion, and may you see the good of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Now, this is one of the great Psalms for men, and God gives us three challenges. Number one, work smart, work hard. Number two, do a great job with your family. And number three, do something for the kingdom. Time out. If you came from a terrible family, or you've been a lousy parent or a father, stop it. You can change that starting today. You can make a choice today to rewrite the future, not the past, but the future. You can learn from your mistakes. God can use it to build on it, to make you a great person, and to have significance at the end of your life, even with a family. So don't go back and mourn over the past, what you should have done, could have done, or didn't know to do. We're not here on a guilt trip. We're here to find out what God expects us to be and to do, and with His help, we, we can do this. So I just want you to know, we're not here to pick on anybody because you had a bad past, or you had a broken home, or you come from a broken marriage, or maybe you were unwanted by a one of your parents or a father. Maybe you never knew your father. Maybe he abandoned the whole deal. I don't know. Don't care. You've got a heavenly father now who loves you, who blesses you, who wants, to, wants you to succeed. So cheer up. This is, this is not an unhappy thought. It's a good thought. Now, I want you to look at this picture up here. This is a picture of a bull elk. That looks like a trophy for any hunter, and we got several in this church. But let me tell you an interesting finding. A biologist named Valerius Geist studies mule deer, bucks, and bull elks. He did his studies in Yellowstone National Park. He coined a phrase after years of studying the bull elk called the shirker bull. And that's what this guy is I'm showing you a picture of. After I tell you what he found out, you might not want this guy on your fireplace because he is a shirker bull, a shirker elk. And what Dr. Geis learned was that because of the mating season, the rutting season for deer and elk, when their hormones start gorging into the bodies of these bulls, they start chasing the girls. And there's this kind of survival of the fittest that goes on. And you've all seen, at least on National Geographic, you've seen these great horned animals ram their heads together until you think it would break their neck. And they're fighting for the right of dominance. Every horned breed does that. Well, among elk, Dr. Geis noticed that in every population of elk and in mule deer, there is always what is called a shirker bull. It's typically a young bull that just starts to grow his horns. And in his first mating season, he feels the urge to merge and he wants to chase the girls. But a big boy's in his way and he has to learn the laws of survival. He gets in his first fight, he doesn't like it. So he goes into the deepest side of the woods or a mountain and lives mostly alone. He never chases a female again. He never breeds. 
So all of his hormones and energy go into growing these massive horns. The breeding season is so extremely strenuous on a bull elk, sometimes they end up dying from their wounds. Sometimes they lock horns, can't get loose, and starve to death. But not the shirker bull. The shirker bull decides after his first fight, he doesn't have the heart for a fight. So he goes to the deepest part of the woods and lives alone and just grows massive horns. So when a hunter typically goes into the woods and sees this bad boy, he thinks, man, I want that champion on my mantle. But what you're calling a champion is really a chicken. (laughs) He doesn't have a heart for a fight. All he's got is big horns or a zipper. What I learned from the study was the guy you want on your mantle is the one with some horns broken off, scars on his forehead, a little bit skinny at the end of the season. And why? Because he's the one that fought for the right to procreate, and he's going to have little elk babies all over that mountain, and he almost died to do it. But he fulfilled the ancient purpose God made him to fulfill. That elk that looks so beat up and bad fought to fulfill his God-given purpose. So will you. You know, I've discovered the first shirker in the Bible was our father, Adam. Adam sat and let a serpent seduce his wife, and he said nothing. Didn't have a heart for the fight. Never took him on. Never questioned or challenged what he said. And then he got talked into the same sin his wife had committed. Adam was a shirker. So he says, God, the woman you gave me, she made me. So now he's blaming God and blaming the woman. No repentance, only excuses. So Adam ended up missing what could have been God's perfect destiny for him and the human race. But he shirked his responsibility. Adam lacked vision and conviction. Vision is a clear mental picture of what could be fueled by the conviction of what should be. That's vision and conviction, and that's what all of us have to have a lot of. So in Psalms 128, God lays out for us man's three-part assignment. Here we go. Number one, when you eat the fruit of your hands, you will be happy. Now, he's talking to men primarily here. Men, God put in you a desire to conquer, to invent, to create, to earn, to profit, to prosper, to dominate, to take over, to rule in a righteous and godly way. Those are still the DNA of a male species that's not a shirker. You want to profit, to create, to earn. You want to take over. You want something out of order to come back into order. You want to dominate it. You want to dominate the economy. You want to dominate a false lawsuit. You want to dominate something that's not what it ought to be. When God told Adam, get out and subdue, that involves a bit of effort, don't you think? Subdue what's out of order. So working is not a curse. Adam was given a work responsibility before he ever fell. Adam was given the management of the garden and the creation to restore what had been broken and by chaos through Satan's activity being cast out of heaven. So God tells him, take care of the garden, be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth, and subdue it. Now, everybody ought to take that, put that on your refrigerator. God doesn't want you to just get by, live on just barely enough, just survive. 
just working nine to five. What a way to make a living. Get over it. That's not God's order for you. Be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth, make a difference, or be part of something that is. And that was God's mandate to the first man, and that hasn't changed. And that's before the fall. That's before the fall. Work isn't a curse. So work hard, work smart, create, invent. Do you know there are people who are disconnected in this room that hold an idea? or resources, or a connection, or a plan, and somebody else in here has the key to make it happen. That's the benefit of a large family. We've got people in medical, legal field, uh, expertise in certain areas, political. We've got people in uh, product business and retail. All kinds of different people who either hold the, the power and authority to make something happen or who are friends and a key influencer with people who do. We've had single moms face a, a high medical MRI, and yet through our doctors that are in here, because of divine connection, they could get something that's 3000 for $300, the benefit of being connected to people who can make things happen. We've had people get into a place they couldn't get in on their own because somebody else of influence had the key to open the door so they could get in and meet who they needed to meet. It's all in here. You know, the Lone Ranger, the Texas, the Lone Star State, that sucks if you're going to be a fruitful person. You got to be connected to people, all kinds of connections. God can even use unsaved people to open a door and bless you. So, so you can be, you can have friends that aren't Christians and you can be good to people that are Christians who respect you, honor you, like you, and can open doors for you you couldn't open for yourself. Well, that's the benefit of networking together as a family, as a bunch of believers in here. I mean, you could be another Bill Gates, but you're not going to be anything alone. You need a team of people. Do you have any idea who you might be sitting close to? And how close are you to a breakthrough to something that could be huge? So men, your work is not a curse. It's not our punishment for Adam's sin. It's our opportunity. God put a conquering spirit in you. You've got to fight some battles. You'll have to break a sweat now and then. You'll get a scar on your forehead, but fight. It's part of your male DNA. So work, work hard. Work smart, work creatively, work as a team, know one another, bless one another's business, prosper, earn money, buy property. I think one of the simplest expressions of the kingdom of God is just buy stuff. Think how much different it'd be if you owned everything. How much, when you own everything, you make the rules. You rent, you're the tail, you're not the head. All of us have had to start out maybe renting something. We didn't, but you, but you know, our goal would be ownership. Even if it's small, I got to start somewhere. So even in Cindy and I getting married and all, we started off small and little by little by little by little over time. Our goal was never to be at the mercy of somebody. We started off in a strip mall as a church. And of course, anytime the landowner or the building owner wants to make changes, up the rent, do any, he can do what he wants. He owns it. You know, Christians need to be smart. We need to own everything, too. 
I mean, really, think big. We really do. You know, maybe you didn't get that impressed on you from your father or in a home growing up. Buy the restaurant. Do something. I mean, you say, well, Rick, I don't have any skills. I'm just working at McDonald's. Then end up being the most reliable, early in, last to leave guy. Pretty soon, you're the manager of the McDonald's. Then pretty soon, you can become an owner. Pretty soon, you manage a district. And then you get enough capital, you can get sponsorship and buy the shoe. Working at McDonald's? That's a great, that could be a key to a big future. Oh, but you got to work too hard. Oh, I'm sorry. You, you want 200,000 a year, don't you, to do nothing. I'm sorry. It won't happen that way. But I guarantee if God made you to be fruitful, you can, you can start at any level you want, but you won't stay there. You, you become excellent. You work hard. You're diligent. You're honest. You initiate. Shoot. Ain't nobody going to let you go for anything, no matter what. You, you become such a value. You solve problems, you're valuable. Everybody can bring problems. How much brain power does that take? Tell me how to fix a problem and you're valuable. That's the one you pay the most for. Okay? So think about, are you increasing your value, men? Think how much different that would be, ownership. I mean, we ought to own everything up and down this street and take it over. Other, other nationalities have done so, but Christians don't. They think Kmart and pie plates and plastic chairs and, oh, that's too much. Oh, we could never afford that. There's one thing I've never said in my family. Don't ever say to your children, we can't afford that. Now, maybe you can't buy it now. Maybe it's not necessary. But if the time comes that you must have it, and you're in the purpose of God, you will be able to afford it. God will make it possible. Don't pre-program, honey, we can't afford a college education. Get that out of your mind. You've already killed a dream before it even started, and you haven't given God a chance to intervene and do anything about it. How small is that? You've limited the Holy One of Israel. God's not limited by anything. Man, if He can raise the dead and He can open the womb of a 90-year-old woman and make a 100-year-old man happy, He can do anything. Back up the sun, you worry about we can't afford a tuition. Nonsense. There's all kinds of ways God can come through for you. All I'm saying is I'm not putting that thought in my kid's head, ever. Okay? So, best-selling author, here's her picture, on retirement on Amazon.com is Erin Botsforth. In her introduction of her book, she tells the story of how as a 16-year-old girl being hit by a motorcycle going the wrong way and it killed a man. She was charged with manslaughter. Her father had died when they were very little and left the family in deep debt. Her lawyer told her impoverished mom to plea bargain and take a one or two year prison sentence and then get on with life. And Erin cried, begged her mom not to let him send her to prison. Her mother said, sweetheart, we have no money. Money isn't everything. But when you have no money, you have no choices. And Erin said, that changed my life forever at that moment. When you have no money, you have no choices. Now, she's a top financial advisor in our nation. Hello. She decided that may be the case now with you, Mom, but that's not going to be my future. And it shouldn't be yours either if you're a child of God, right? You can't have choices broke. That is why God says poverty is a curse. It is never listed in the Old Testament or New Testament as a blessing. 
it is a curse. And if you're blessed and Jesus redeems you from the curse, then get out of that poverty thinking and mentality. I realize some people have taken a truth and extremely exaggerated it and abused it. Uh, we're not into that, but we're into the idea that God wants you to prosper and do well. He wants you to have more than enough, not barely enough, not just enough, but He wants you to have more than enough. And that in big part is going to be dependent on some of the choices that you make, and particularly in your thinking. As a man thinks, so is he. I don't think poor, and I have been poor on a few days, but I don't think poor. I don't think shortage. I don't think God's short on anything. He can create everything. Holy cow! If He owns the cattle and the gold on a thousand hills, my goodness, the earth and all that's in it, the uranium, what are you, what's the problem? What's the problem? Somebody else may have a shortage. God's got no shortage. Everything's still here. And since He's called Jehovah Jireh, our provider, shoot, we're in the chips. If we could just get some of you to believe that, to think that, and start acting like that. Now, if you apply this to the kingdom of God, to this church, to yourself, we want choices. But when you're broke, you have few choices. So let's work hard, let's work smart, let's team up, let's do great things, let's make more money than we've ever made, let's do kingdom stuff, let's pay things off. We got something to conquer. I mean, it, think about it, In each year, it's going to be varying depending on your talent and gifts and ability, but wouldn't it be cool to have such all men doing well in whatever their occupation may be, honoring God, serving, giving, and we, we just take charge of everything we need. I remember a year or two ago, I was in a businessman in this church's office, and he mentioned something about sound, and, and I said, yeah, Nathan said that's going to cost $35,000, and he just hollered down at his secretary, says, cut a check to Summit for thirty five, and I thought, shoot, fire, that's better than taking an offering. <laughs> now, that, that, you know, we got to build a sign down at the corner down here. It's a be- architects have designed it. They've already put in all the engineering. Everything's done. Now, we just need to raise the money to put it up. That's a high traffic area down there at the corner. Very valuable. Uh, we hope to sell about a two-acre, two-and-a-half-acre track down there, which would pay off nearly $3 million of debt for this church, give us more cash per month so we can, you know, build a gymnasium, a young people. I mean, I'm— th- I'm thinking we got lots of stuff to conquer and conquest, but if you're happy with just get by and survive, it'll be a long time to make that happen. You know, I I wish I could be out of this job and in a business job so that when you said, well, how much is that sign down there? Well, I don't get two of my friends. It's 200,000 or 225, whatever it is. I don't know. Or whatever. It's an LED. It's beautiful. It'll be seen by thousands of people every single morning and every single night. Uh, What I'm making an illustration. Be great. Say, honey, give me a check for 100 grand. And uh, uh, Bobby, give me a check for 100 grand. Paid for. Next. That happens. That happens with some people. I was over at the JCC, the Jewish Community Center, outstanding place. Uh, Little Mia, my granddaughter and grandson, they take swimming lessons there, and they have all kinds of wonderful activities. And if you walk down the hall, you'll see a library and the family name. They bought it and paid cash for it. They didn't have to raise any money. You go down to another room, recreation area or gym, paid for by this family. Let me make you a promise. You want to pay off that gym? I'll put your name on it, okay? Your mother's name, your mother-in-law's name, your ex-husband's name. I'll put it up there. It's right. It's being done all the time. We got to think a little bigger and a little better. 
So create, invent, enjoy, progress, uh, conquer, buy, work hard, work smart. Guys, learn your business. Get smart. Read books on your business. Study people who excel in your business. What do they know you don't know? How do they dress? How do they talk? How do they run a business? How is their office managed? Find out. Don't just survive. Don't Don't call yourself a salesman if all you do is say, can I help you? That's not a salesman. You go watch a real pro. He'll woo you, love you, and tell you don't. He'll be writing a check before you go out of there to buy something. This guy is so well versed and so nice. You can't you can't get away from him. Some of my friends have a few store owners like that, and you they make you want to buy something even if you don't need it. That's a salesman. Okay, learn for crying out loud. Who's who are you copying? Your broke uncle? Who who taught you that? I'm just saying, if, I, if suddenly uh, Art Mazzano put me in a state farm insurance business, I'm going to learn everything I can about that business. I'm going to learn how to, uh, how to show homes if I'm in real estate. I'm not going to have pigeon dung on my car and Coke cans in the floor. I'm not going to show up late, and I'm not going to be unprepared. I'm going to have pictures and detail. I'm going to have alternatives for you. I'm ready. I'm, if you are not a tire kicker, but you're a buyer, I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you. I'm a salesman. I want to prosper in what I do. Jesus said, herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. So survival's not God's plan for you. Get over that. Well, how you doing? Well, I'm, we, we're doing okay. Okay? What, what, that's kissing your sister. Okay? What? Ugh. Number two, after the mandate to work is a mandate to cultivate. Make your wife a fruitful vine. Now, vines are an amazing plant. Look up here at this picture. They've got little fingers on them, and they look for anything to grab onto. Otherwise, that vine just lays lifeless on the ground, nothing to look at. So God says, men, make your wife a fruitful vine. If your wife is going to be fruitful, your job as a man is to give her something she can climb on and grow. Don't let your wife's talents, ability, and creativity lay on the ground. Give her opportunity. Give her a chance. Give her a platform. Give her a trellis, something to grow on. Then she becomes a fruitful vine. So if your wife can run a boutique, if your wife can run a home networking and that's in her heart, or she's talented to sing, or we have ladies that teach the Bible and have classes in here, you men, it is right as a man to release your wife to do something that's fulfilling to her so she feels fruitful. And men, treat that wife with honor and respect so your sons will see how to treat a woman. You honor her. You open the door for her. My dad was not a Christian. He was military. But boy, he said, when a woman comes in, you stand up. I don't care what her age is. Number two, you offer your seat. I don't care if you're hot and tired. You say, yes, ma'am. Thank you. No, ma'am. Please. Those, I can still hear that ugly voice in my head. I still, and I still do it. Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. And we make little Mia. She's just six or seven now. And we say, what do you say? Uh, thank you. That's what I thought you said. Uh, please, may I? Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. That's respect. That's honor. And boy, if you, look at the, if you look at the Middle Eastern cultures, one thing they do is have great respect for the fathers. They're very well honored in that community. Father plays a big role. God designed a father to give self-esteem to a child. And when you go to prison, the first question every psychologist will ask is, tell me about your dad. And it's usually always not a good story. So don't end up this way. 
So let your wife be fruitful. Cindy gets up. She welcomes people. She has chosen. But in the early days, I didn't let her do anything. I did everything because I was raised in sort of a different kind of a culture, kind of stupid. And then I found out what a valuable, what a valuable asset she is to me. She remembers your name. She knows your body temperature from last week when you come in. If your child had a few, I don't even recognize you. You could come French kiss me. And I would say, who's that? Well, Rick, they've been in our church for three years and she's over in the nursery department and Bob runs one of the cameras and oh. So we walk in a restaurant, if, there's some, if you're in there, she'll identify you in one second, like an eagle looking at a rat at, at, at a thousand feet. Say, honey, over there on the right, that's Bob and, and Billy and Mary, and they're in our church. And then I get to say, hey, Bob, hey, how are you? So if you ever hear me say, hey, bro, how you doing? I don't know your name. I don't know your name. You can help me. Tell me your name. You see me up here all the time. I don't get to do that with you, and I don't have her gift. But I want her to be fruitful, feel, feel part of my ministry or part of your business, whatever way she can fit in, to feel fruitful, significant. Everybody has the right to feel that way. So let her flourish in that way. And then it says, your children shall be like olive shoots. Now those are, I've been to Israel and I've seen them 15 to 20 feet around at the trunk. Some of them are over 2,000 years old. And they say you can cut branches off, but you can't kill it. And you can cut it off at the ground, but you can't kill it. Those shoots will come right back out. So God says, make your children like olive shoots around your table. That means make your children a blessing to your life. That's your responsibility. Men, you are called to pastor your family. Make your wife a fruitful vine. Make your children olive shoots around your table. You know, one of the tragedies in the American culture is that the man allows his wife to come to church and bring the kids. Don't send them, men. Bring them yourself. Show them God is important to you. Just value. Treat their mother with honor and respect. If you're divorced, don't dishonor the other spouse. And I know it goes on. And you are going to reap a bad reward for doing it. Women do it and men do it. Don't do it. When you have children involved in a divorce, you love those children. You don't demean any other spouse. And no matter what the other spouse says about you, if you love those kids, you speak confidence and vision and blessing into their lives. There'll come a day as they get older, they realize you're not who someone has made you out to be. They will know better, right? So you can, I can't help what somebody else does, but I can help what I do. And I didn't come up in a home where I was blessed, but I've learned the importance of blessing my children. I believe in you. I love you. I text this morning, boy, girls, I want them to know I'm proud to be your dad. I love you. I, I love everything about you. I wouldn't trade you for anybody else in the world. We get little Mia down there and Ethan, hug them, kiss them all the time. Father's love before they get a dating love. And I want to set the bar so high, it's going to be hard for somebody to get a hold of them and marry them because I want them to compare them to me. Well, my daddy washes my car. Well, my daddy fixes my car. Well, my daddy, my daddy, my daddy. I'm going to raise that bar up here so something that's a creeping thing can't, can't get in the house. You know what I'm saying? God gave Adam dominion over all creeping things. So I don't want any creeps around my girl. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, but I'm saying, dads, even if you're a late-blooming Christian, 
and you didn't do it, and your kids are grown, you can pick up the phone and say, son, I love you. I'm proud of you. I'm proud to be your dad. Uh, you're awesome. Or, what, or maybe some accomplishment, maybe in sports, maybe they've achieved something working in the business. Tell them you're proud of them. They may say, oh, thank, thank you. But it means so much to hear that from somebody. So give it lavishly. And what I'm saying is, let's say you didn't come up and being taught that. My father wasn't taught that. But I can, I can pitch it to my kids and to my grandkids. I realize how important it is. And then I know my heavenly Father loves me, esteems me highly. I'm the apple of His eye, Scripture says. I mean, my goodness, I get, if I didn't have a father, then I can get the esteem I need and confidence I need from a heavenly Father who says, you actually came from me. You came through those parents, but you came from me. You're my design, and I love you, and I'll never forsake you or, or leave you. So there's no need to... Suck your thumb and, and, and become looking, be a high-performance person looking for father's approval or being promiscuous as a woman looking for my father's approval, someone to say, I love you, you're pretty. You know, I tell those girls every day, every day, oh, you're the most beautiful thing I ever laid my eyes on. And I see little Maya over there with, uh, with, with Nico, and we do the same. And they're just getting more beautiful by the day. And I just tell them, hey, princess, you look so gorgeous today. Where'd you get that dress? Cece bought it. Okay. <laughs> see, we don't get a tax deduction for grandchildren. Do you know that? We ought to get a write-off. We ought to get a write-off as grandparents. Yes, amen. Come on, somebody, shout. Let's write the IRS. And so send them. God says that's my primary responsibility. Bring them. Every dad is going to help us as we learn to pastor our families, build a world-class church. So you want to conquer something? Conquer that. Pastor your family and your children. And last, number three, have a kingdom revelation. It says, the Lord bless you, verse 5, out of Zion, and may you see the good of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Look at the two-way kingdom connection in this verse. Number one, the Lord bless you out of Zion. One idea in a time of anointing in this house can change your life forever. One creative thought, one idea, one invention, one partnership could change your life forever. May the Lord bless you out of Zion. I don't know how, if you're a sharp guy and, or gal, I don't know how somebody who's a pagan ought to be able to be in the same business as you and stay in your league unless you're sloppy and mediocre. If I've got God and favor and blessing, I ought to have an edge over anybody else in my business, in my field of business. If I'm excellent, smart, I work hard, I work creatively, if I'm that kind of a guy, nobody ought to be able to stay in my league and compete with me. I don't care whether it's real estate or sales or insurance or car business or whatever it may be. No, no, no. This guy, you know, he's a, got all kind of addictions. He's out all night. He's been married 18 times. His kids hate his guts. And he's going to compete with me? Not a chance in heaven. I, yeah, I changed that. I know. See, I'm getting, I'm getting more politically correct here. I'm trying to say nice. But that's my attitude. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to whip you. I'm going to whip you for the glory of God. I'm going to use my prosperity to bless the kingdom of God and to bless my family. I got an edge on you. I ought to be. We're blessed and highly favored for crying out loud. Why wouldn't I have an edge on you? So, may God bless you out of Zion. That means that in God's house you receive strength, encouragement, ideas, creativity, May God bless you out of Zion. Well, you're going to hear testimony in a minute, people who have been blessed in this house. 
Some of you were blessed in some other house. Thank God for that. Maybe your life, your marriage was changed. Maybe you, you were able to whip an addiction to, to drugs or to alcohol or some other area, and now you've got a strong home, a family. Your, your life is pretty much together. May God bless you out of Zion. So here's a shocking idea. Church is not just about hanging out and learning religious rules and getting fire insurance against hell. Church ought to be the most creative environment you could ever sit in. You're sitting in a place right now where people are up here doing worship music and all of a sudden, bam, something can explode in your mind, in your heart, in your spirit that can change your world. God bless you out of Zion. You're wrestling with a problem. You're sitting here. Maybe something in the message, something in the music, or just God Himself, His Spirit, speaks to you in your heart and drops an idea about a problem or conflict you're in, and you walk out of here with that idea. The Holy Spirit is here. He's creative. He's got the sum of all wisdom. There's nothing He can't do. So expect Him occasionally to touch you, to touch you with an idea or a thought. Have you ever had a, an idea or a thought occur to you? And I thought, I'm under pressure, I'm stressed, there's a problem, and uh, what should I do about this? And he drops an idea in you, and it's a great one, and it's a key, and it works. So he says, may God bless you out of Zion. And second, may God bless you out of Zion, and may you remember Jerusalem always. Now, the idea is that you connect, God says, connect yourself to my covenant, to my leadership, and to each other, and I'll bless you out of Zion. And when I do, don't forget Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem here is a type of the church. I, John, saw the new Jerusalem, the Lamb's wife. What's the Lamb's wife? The bride of Christ. The church. It's a picture metaphorically of the church. It's an Old Testament shadow. Don't forget Jerusalem. So he said, I'm going to bless you out of Zion, but don't forget Jerusalem. Uh, Zion is only a 10-acre plot of land in Jerusalem. It's smaller than most church properties. It was only a part of Jerusalem. It was a city of praise. David created a 10,000-voice choir of men to walk through the streets of Jerusalem singing worship to the Lord from sun up. Boy, that'll wake you up, huh? 10,000 men walking through town with praise and worship. David was a singer. And men, your creativity, your joy is going to come out of your ability to worship. Zion is a place of worship. God will bless you out of Zion. Did you know in the early days of coal mining, they had no gas detection equipment to alert them when that silent killer gas was present? So they would take a canary in a cage into the mine. A canary is a singer by nature, and even in a dark mine, a canary will sing. And so miners were taught, listen for the song of that canary. If that canary's not singing, run for your life. It's dead, and you're going to be next. Now, when Jesus was riding into Jerusalem, a week before they crucified Him, He cleansed the temple. And when He chased off the money changers, the crooks, the liars, and thieves, there was a restoration of worship in God's house. Two things happened instantly. The lame and the blind and the halt came and got healed, and the children, it says, sang again. For 400 years, there was no worship. They just did religious stuff in the temple, but no worship, no joy, no singing. People should have run for their lives. But when Jesus cleansed the temple and restored as a house of prayer, there was worship again. And out of Zion, people instantly began to be blessed. I wonder if it's possible that week after week people don't notice in their own life, your canary has stopped singing. 
when you lose the ability for joy in the Lord and for worship, you better run for your life or figure out what's gone wrong. You better get back to that place because that's your place of blessing and creativity. God will bless you out of Zion, and then you remember Jerusalem. And that's the clearest picture in Scripture of God blessing you with ideas, creativity, with wealth for the right reason. Then you remember the house of God. So as God's blessing, it should be no problem for you to bring back abundance from that blessing to bless the house of God, where you got that creativity and favor of God in the first place, right? So when you have something to bless you in the house of God, pay it off. Expand it. Send to missions. Buy more equipment. Pay staff better. Hire more people. Because your joy is to bless the house of God, because the house of God has blessed you. May God bless you out of Zion, and may you remember Jerusalem all the days of your life. Last thought. One of the most deadly snakes in the world is called a Bushmaster. They're not only deadly, you might want to look at it up on a screen. They're not only deadly because of their venom, but because they're extremely aggressive. When they bite, unlike a rattlesnake that bites once, they bite multiple times, and they're up to 14 feet long. A scientific team went to South America to capture one for study. They put it in a basket, tied the lid down, and while transporting it up the river for shipment home, they put the basket in the hole of a small boat. It was an old boat, leaked a lot of water, so water pumps ran continuously. One of the team went down to check on the snake, and to his horror, the lid was off. And that Bushmaster was out. That will increase your pucker factor significantly. <laughs> so we've got a deadly snake loose in the dark. They finally persuade some crew to take flashlights and try to find it. They were stunned by what they discovered. They were slogging around in six inches of water with flashlights, and all of a sudden they saw the snake. But it was dead. And in front of the snake was a stowaway mother cat with three kittens. Now, here's the moral of that story. When men figure out the why, they will always figure out the how. The mama cat's why was, if I don't do something, this snake will take my young. And that birthed the how. And researchers on that boat still don't know how a stowaway alley cat killed a 12-foot bushmaster. But she did it, driven by her cause. And when she understood the why, she figured out the how snake dead. Some of you haven't figured out the why of your life yet. And if you don't figure out the why, you're never going to discover the how. See, how am I going to make my life work is intricately tied to why I live my life. And when you understand the why, you'll always discover the how. See, I'm not here waiting to go to heaven. I'm here by purpose like that bull elk. He's got a purpose on a mountain. I've got a purpose in this world, and so do you. So does every person in this room. And when you figure out what that purpose is, and we just read three of them right here for men, then God gives you the how to get it done. Conquer. Work hard. Work smart. Team up. Partner. Read. Study. Create. Invent. Enjoy. Number two, cultivate. Make your wife a fruitful vine. Make your children like olive shoots. Pastor your family. And three, serve your church. Build the kingdom. You do these three things from Psalms 128, and I guarantee you, you're going to build a great life of no regret. You'll satisfy the need to conquer, and you won't be a shirker bull just growing big horns who doesn't have the guts to fight. For more information on Summit Christian Center and Rick Godwin, visit SummitSA.com and connect with us on social media.